Well, if you've got a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. Our sermon text today is Genesis, it's only one verse, Genesis 3.15. Whenever you do a, something like that, it's always hard to know, do you just read the one verse? Uh, so for the sake of context, although I won't be preaching the whole chapter, uh, if you all don't mind, I'd like to read through at least the first 21 verses of Genesis chapter 3, and I'll ask that if you're able to do so, that you stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 21, give ear to the reading of God's holy word. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave uh, to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you And the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and clothe them. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. Let's pray and ask him to teach us once again and help us understand his word today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, as, I, as you say through Isaiah, that it never returns to you void, but always accomplishes that for which you send it. So we ask uh, once again that you would be pleased to teach us by your spirit that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear 
great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, uh, in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, it's the opening greeting or part of the opening greeting of that letter. The Apostle Paul says something that, you know, when you read the opening greetings, sometimes you, you read them and you just kind of go right past them and, and, you know, don't kind of gloss over them and don't think much about what's said until you get to what you think of as the, the main point of the letter or the main body of the, of the text. But in the first four verses of the book of Romans, Paul says this. He says uh, he identifies himself, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. And then he says this about the gospel, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What does he say about the gospel? Where does Paul, the apostle, set apart for the gospel? Where does Paul say the gospel started? Not with him, not with the other apostles. He said it was promised beforehand through his prophets, through the prophets of God in the Holy Scriptures. What scriptures is Paul referring to there? The Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. In other words, the gospel of Christ does not really begin in the New Testament. It really begins in the pages of the Old Testament. And, and what God spoke about his gospel through those prophets in the Old Testament was about a certain, not just a, a thing, but a person. If he says, verse 3, concerning his son. So the gospel of Christ is in the Old Testament. It was proclaimed and promised beforehand through the prophets of God in the Old Testament. It it was about the Old Testament is about the Lord Jesus Christ, who's not just the son of David, but the son of God himself. Now, some of you may know, maybe you grew up in churches that, that celebrated what we call Advent. Maybe some of you don't know what that, never heard of that before. Um, I grew up in a church that, that observed it in some way. At least we had the Advent wreath in the front of the church with the five candles and every Sunday they would love we're, we're not doing that, but you would light a different candle when I was a kid. All I thought of it was, it was like the countdown to when we got our presents. You know, it was like you'd get the first candle lit, and I don't know what the preacher said. All I could think of was, there's three more. There's three more until Christmas Eve, and then we're good, you know. Uh, but we, a lot of churches uh, observe something in the church calendar called, called Advent. Now, the word Advent, uh, it, it's a Latin, everything's Latin, right? It's, it's the Latin translation of the Greek word for coming. Or presence, and so it's it, it's about the coming of Christ. That's what the word Advent uh, means. There are typically four Sundays in in Advent, and those Sundays at many churches uh, we use them to focus on the anticipation of the coming of Christ and His birth and the incarnation. And so this morning, you, you'll notice we don't really change anything about the service. There there's many there are many people within the Reformed tradition that have different views about a church calendar. Uh, we don't change anything in, of substance in our services. We don't observe it that way. We don't change things around. We don't light candles. But what we, what we use it for, what many use it for, is just a way of focusing on the different things about the gospel that the Bible emphasizes. So at Christmas, every year, whether it be one sermon or four, we spend time looking at, in particular, the incarnation of Christ, the promise of, of God sending his son, uh, which is something that we need to keep in mind and be reminded of at Easter, really every Sunday, but Easter Sunday in particular, we talk, we talk about what? The resurrection of Christ, his death on Good Friday, his resurrection. And so we're, 
we're using it in that kind of a fashion, just as a, uh, something, a means of, of making sure that we deal with and put before each other the, the incarnation of Christ, the promise of his coming, on at least a yearly basis, even more than one Sunday. And so this morning, uh, we're going to start a four-week sermon series that we're calling, for lack of better options, The Promise of Christmas. Uh, in, in this series, what we're going to do is, at least if our plan is in God's plan, we're going to look at three texts in consecutive Sundays that deal with, uh, not the only texts, but three main texts that deal with the promise of the sending of the Son of God uh, to be our Savior. And then the fourth Sunday, which happens to be Christmas Eve, we're going to look at one of the traditional New Testament texts that give the narrative of the birth of our Savior. So. Uh, The first thing that we're going to look at, the first one of these texts that we're going to look at uh, this morning is the first one. And the first one is Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We're going to look mainly at just that verse. I'm not going to preach that whole chapter. It would take me a year probably to, it would take a long time to preach through that whole chapter. Uh, It really would take a long time to preach through this one verse properly. We're going to try to do it in one one Sunday. This verse, you may know, is commonly referred to as the Proto-Evangelion. Now, that's a, another weird name. Proto, you, you know what proto means, right? If you have a prototype, it's the first type of something. Uh, if the evangelion, that, that probably rings a bell to you. So what proto-evangelion means is the first gospel or the first instance of the gospel, the first appearance of the gospel message in, in scripture. The renowned Dutch Reformed theologian Herman Bovink has this to say about this chapter as a whole, but also this verse I think in particular, he says, in principle, Genesis 3 contains the entire history of humankind. All the ways of God for the salvation of the lost and the victory over sin. In substance, the whole gospel, the entire covenant of grace is present here. All that follows is the development of what has been germinally planted here. In other words, this chapter, and also I would say this verse, this one verse, contains all of that. So there's a lot. You you know, in a sense he's saying you could use Genesis 3, and I'll say Genesis 3.15, as kind of an interpretive grid through which to read the rest of your Bible. Everything that is contained in the New Testament and the rest of the Old Testament is, this is kind of a pun, I think he might have meant it as a pun, it's contained in seed form here in this promise uh, concerning the seed of the woman. So it's, it's not an overstatement at all. The whole gospel is found here in this verse and in this chapter in seed form. Now, we don't have really enough time to unpack the significance of the whole chapter or even this one verse in one sermon this morning. In some ways, you'll probably see it, as I think, that we're going to kind of scratch the surface of it. You know, maybe this will spur you on to more study on your own. I hope that's the case as well. But we're going to look at that one verse, verse 15, primarily from our chapter today. And the first thing we're going to see in this verse is that God himself proclaims as part of his curse or judgment upon the serpent in particular here, that he was going to put enmity or strife between the serpent and the woman. So the first thing we see is the strife or the enmity, enmity, in the verse, in verse 15, he starts off saying this. God says to the, to the serpent, I will put enmity or strife between you and the woman and between your offspring or seed and her offspring. Now, that probably maybe seems a little odd to our ears. 
Maybe, maybe a lot of things, as, you, as we read the whole chapter or most of the chapter, some of the things that God mentioned as part of the curse or the, you know, the, the penalty for sin for, for each one's part in the fall might have sounded odd. But this first part, when he talks about putting enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between her offspring and his, you know, when I was a, a, a younger, when I was a kid, I, I, I don't know why I thought this, but I thought all he was talking about was he was going to, this meant that, that most people, at least normal people, weren't going to like snakes. <laughs> I know some in our present company like snakes. But uh, that, that's all I thought it meant, that this was the explanation of why most of us get kind of weirded out by a snake. You know, you see a snake on the road, ha, ah, you know, that's what I thought this was, was saying. I thought, that makes sense. I don't like snakes. Now I know why I don't like snakes. Now I know why I don't like to pick them up. Well, this verse is, a lot, is about a lot more than, than that. It's not just about snakes in general. It's about what uh, the book of Revelation calls that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan himself, Revelation 20, verse 2. You know, you think about it, it's not an accident that right near the beginning of your Bible and right near the end of your Bible, you have a reference to this serpent and identifying that serpent as the evil one, as Satan himself. Re- Revelation, in a lot of ways, it properly bookends the other side of the Bible from Genesis. It, it completes the story. It tells the end of the story in some of the same ways that it was told in the book of Genesis. A lot of the imagery, the words, the phrases uh, that you find in Revelation are found in Genesis. In the early chapters of Genesis, that's not, that's not an, an accident. That's there for a reason. Now, why place enmity uh, between the serpent and the woman? Why, why does God do that? Why does God put enmity or strife or division between his offspring and hers. Some, some reformed theologians have noted that in listening to the serpent's lies and, and really believing the, the lie over God's word uh, and giving into temptation to disobey God's commandments, that humanity in Adam and Eve had not just rebelled against the Lord their God, but also you know, in, in doing that falling into sin and misery, but in some sense, this was the picture you read in, of in Genesis 3. It's not just rebellion against God. It's siding with the evil one. It's, it's changing sides. It's saying, I'm in covenant with God. Well, not anymore. I want to be like God. I'm going to covenant, in a sense, be on the same team as the devil himself, the, the old serpent, uh, as Revelation calls him. Herman Bovink, I'll quote him one more time. He says this. He says, with this power, that is Satan, uh, with this power, humanity had made a covenant for its own uh, and for its sake broken the covenant with God. So there was a covenant with God before sin. And, and this time they had broken the covenant with God. He continues, God graciously annuls it, puts enmity between the seed of the serpent and the woman's seed brings the seed of the woman, humanity, that is, back to his side. Hence declaring that from Eve will spring a human race and that that race, though it will have to suffer much from the conflict with that evil power, will eventually triumph. It's not random that God places enmity between her and the serpent and also between her offspring and the serpent's offspring. It was a, God has gracious purposes for his people in doing that and putting this strife and enmity there. So, Here we see the grace of God in the gospel beginning to shine through in the midst of some serious black darkness in the fall of man in Genesis chapter. Genesis chapter three is a dark 
chapter. That's an understatement, right? It, the, it, it may not jump off the page at us as being as dark as it is, but it, it explains all the sin, all the wickedness, all the misery, all the death, all the mourning, all the pain, all that stuff comes from one sin here in Genesis chapter 3. All of our own sins have a beginning in Genesis chapter 3. Your struggle with sin, even as a Christian, has its beginning in Genesis chapter 3 in that rebellion against God and his word by Adam and Eve. But here in this chapter, even though you know the part that we're focusing on is part of God's curse for sin. God's pronouncing the penalty, the curse for sin, and he you know what does he do? He doesn't do what we would do. You know, we we like to pass the buck and we want the buck to be at the very end to the last person and then we want nothing to do with it. It's all somebody else's fault. God God passes out or you know kind of dishes out the penalties to each one that was involved. But to the serpent, when he pronounces the curse on the serpent, in the midst of doing that, the gospel starts shining through to his people. God promises a deliverer, a redeemer, even in the midst of giving the curse on on the serpent. This enmity, again, has a gracious purpose for us as the people of God. And if you think about it, this is an odd way of putting it, but of course, not literally true. But, you know, if you think about it, the Bible should be three chapters long. Of course, there wouldn't be a Bible, but... There's no reason for anything to happen other than judgment after chapter 3. The axe should have fallen, and that should have been it. Right? There should have been no need for the rest of Scripture, because in Adam and Eve, that should have been the end of it, and God could have condemned him. But it's not what he does. Even in, pro- even in passing this judgment and saying, there's going to be enmity I'm going to put, he was going to put this enmity and split up Eve and the serpent. It means that life is going to go on. And there's going to be time for the Redeemer to come and save his people from their sins. Now, this is at least part of what Bobig was talking about when he said the entire history of humankind was summarized in this, in this one chapter. If you think about it, most of history, a lot of history, can be understood as the unfolding story of this enmity or strife that God puts between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. That's certainly true of the, of the history of redemption found in your Bibles. Especially in your Old Testament, but also in the New. A lot of what you see there, this strife that you see, this battling between the Lord's people and those who persecute God's people, is really the unfolding of this enmity. It's the outworking of this enmity. Much of what we see in Scripture, much of what you see in the history of the church, is an unfolding of this enmity. In fact, in the very next chapter of Genesis, I won't preach it here this morning, but Genesis chapter 4, what do you find there? You find the, the brothers, Cain and Abel, and what happens? What does Cain do to his brother? He murders his brother. There's no easing into sin, is there? I mean, right away, the very next thing you see is brother murdering brother and trying to lie to the Lord about it. Remember, Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? God, as if God could be lied to, as if God could be, could be fooled. Well, what, what, does that, what does that chapter tell us? about this enmity. You know, where Cain murders his brother. Why did Cain commit that wicked act? That unspeakable, if you think about it, act. We'd be horrified if we knew a brother who killed a brother. We would not know what to do with that. How, how do we understand it? Why did Cain do that? Because although Cain and Abel were both the physical offspring of, of Adam and Eve, whose spiritual offspring was Cain? The evil one. Now, how do, I, how do I say that? On what authority do I say that? Am I speculating? 
Am I just throwing things against the wall to see what sticks? No, First John, the Apostle John in First John chapter 3, verses 11 to 15, John refers back to Genesis 4, and he says this, 1 John 3, 11 to 15, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. How did John, how did the Apostle John understand Genesis 3 and 4? He's telling us, don't be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. There's two reasons in that text that John gives why Cain killed Abel. The first one is more kind of on the surface. Because Cain's actions were evil and his brothers, Abel's, were righteous. He was making, according to Cain, he made Cain look bad. Those whose actions are evil hate actions of righteous people because it, it shows their actions for what they are. But what's the real reason he killed him? Who's, who was he of? He was of the evil one, who was a murderer from the beginning. The real reason Cain killed Abel, the ultimate reason was he was the seed of the serpent, spiritually, even if he was the physical seed of Adam and Eve, just as Abel was. Notice how John also works an exhortation to us from the basis of that. What does he say? In other words, we read Genesis 4 and we think, okay, that's interesting, sad, interesting, Cain killed Abel, that's awful, I I can't believe he did that. John says, there's there's a a therefore from that, there's an application, what does he say? Don't be surprised if the world hates you. In other words, this is that. The same hatred Cain had for Abel is the same hatred the world has always had and will always have in this life for God's people. Don't be surprised at persecution. Don't be surprised at these things. It's part of that very same enmity that was instituted by God back in Genesis 3, 15. Think about this. Every act of murderous hatred against God's people throughout the history of, of Scripture and the history of the church, is an, it's an outworking of this strife or enmity that we see in our text here in verse 15. Whether, Cain, whether it be Cain killing his brother Abel, whether it be Esau persecuting Jacob, whether it be Pharaoh seeking to destroy the children of Israel, whether it be the Philistines attacking Israel, whether it be even uh, King Saul attacking David, even within the kingdom itself, even King Herod in the pages of the Gospels trying to kill the baby Jesus, all of that is an outworking of this strife, of the serpent hating the woman and vice versa, and the seeds of those two having strife and enmity against each other. Not only that, but it continues to this very day. It's not just an old history thing. It's not just a a Bible times, so to speak, thing. It's in our day as well. And it will return until the Lord returns in glory. We are are often vexed and grieved by the ill treatment, the persecution, the evil, even the violence against Christians that we see both in our land and elsewhere. Maybe sometimes... You think about the violence against the Church of Christ in the Middle East, and we're, we don't even know what to think of it. 
We're so horrified by it. Or we think of the violence that was recently committed in that little Baptist church in Texas. You know, you see that and you just you have no idea what to say. We're, we're rightly horrified by it. And we think, what in the world is going on? What is God doing in all of this? Why did God allow this to happen? We struggle to figure out these things, but we have to remember that there's a lot more going on than what meets the eye. How do you explain someone going to a church, a peaceful place of worship, and murdering dozens of people in cold blood? Defenseless people. Well, there's one explanation ultimately for that. Not, I'm not this man's judge, but he's acting as the seed of the serpent. And his, his target for his violence was not accidental. It never really is. We have to remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, verse 12. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's more that's going on than meets the eye. We need more than a psychologist to tell us why this happened. We need the, the revelation of God in Scripture. It really explains it to us ultimately. Much of what you read in the book of Revelation portrays this enmity in picture form. You ever read the book of Revelation and you, you, you see these, these weird visions and, and pictures and you think, what is this about? A lot of it is picturing this very thing. We, we get sometimes too tripped up by the details trying to figure out every little thing rather than seeing the picture that God, that Christ himself is painting in this revelation that he gives to John. But at the very, towards the very end of the book, what does it say? The very devil who deceived our first parents is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, verse 10. In other words, just as we saw a few weeks ago from the Psalms, the Lord Christ will make all these things right. As pastor that stepped preached here last Sunday, Dr. Cass talked about the Lord Christ reigning when? Now. He is seated at the right hand of, we confess that in, in the Nicene Creed this morning. He's reigning now. The book of Hebrews uh, says that, you know, it doesn't always look to us like he's reigning over all things. All things don't seem to be under his feet because all these evil things happen, but he's reigning right now. And one day he'll make all these things right again. Well, the second thing we see, maybe the more important thing we see, in this verse is not just the strife, but the seed, the seed spoken of in Genesis 3.15 or the offspring, depending on your translation. Uh, we see the not just the enmity or strife, but the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now, we, it's not just offspring in general. It does include that. But this, this promise is really of a very particular seed or offspring. Look, look at the verse again. God says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And then what does he say? This isn't how we would have expected it to be written. He says, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We often read offspring, seed, these things, and we think plural. And it, it has some of that involved, but he doesn't say they. They shall bruise their head, and, and you shall, or they shall bruise you know, your seeds shall bruise the seeds, heals the seeds of the woman. He says, he, singular, shall bruise your head, and you, singular, speaking to the serpent, will bruise his heel. It's singular, not plural. So there's a very specific promise here in Genesis 3.15. And that promise is of the coming of Christ himself. 
No, nothing less than the Messiah himself is promised in Genesis 3.15, the Redeemer of God's elect, of his people. We find the Lord here in the midst of pronouncing that curse upon the serpent for his role in the fall of mankind into sin, actually promising in the midst of a curse the coming of the Redeemer, the coming of Christ the Savior, who was to save us from our sins. That's amazing grace. That's grace blazing through the darkness of, of the fall and the Satan's role in it. Now, I think here in this second half of the verses where you start to really see the gospel coming through in, in this text, that's, I think maybe now you're starting to see, if you haven't already, why this verse, this particular verse, is often called the Proto-Evangelion or the first gospel. It's because it really is. The first gospel starts in the third chapter of Genesis right after the fall, right after mankind's fall into sin. The short little verse right near the very beginning of our Bibles is the first proclamation of the good news of great joy that we read of in Luke chapter 2 that was later proclaimed at the birth of Christ at that very first Christmas 2,000 years ago. The good news of great joy didn't just start in Luke chapter 2. It starts here in Genesis chapter chapter 3. The Bible commentator Matthew Henry points out that this one little verse, he, he points out three different things that this verse points forward to or foreshadows about Jesus Christ himself in particular. First, he says this verse speaks of Christ's incarnation. His incarnation. That he should not be called, you know, the seed or offspring of Adam. Isn't that what you would have expected? When you hear seed, you think the man. You think the father. It's not what it says at all. When it speaks of the, the seed of the woman, that is a, a, a prophecy, a hint of the virgin birth. Even as the Lord would later prophesy through Isaiah in Isaiah 7.14 when he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So Genesis 3.15, in a very shortened form, in seed form, pun intended, I guess, speaks of the incarnation of Christ and the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. The second thing, this one little verse or half of the verse talks about, is his sufferings and death. Not just Christ's incarnation, but his sufferings and death. When the Lord speaks of the serpent bruising the heel of the seed of the woman, What's he talking about? He's talking about the sufferings and death of Jesus Christ for our sins, even of his feet being pierced and nailed to the cross. That's the heart of the gospel. Jesus Christ dying in the place of sinners to make atonement for our sins and reconcile us to God. The third thing that, that Henry says that this one part of this verse points to is Christ's victory over Satan, his conquest of Satan. He would come... What did he come to do? To, to bruise or crush the serpent's head. The serpent would, 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 would bruise his heel, but he'd get his head crushed in the process. I, I always picture it as a snake going to bite your foot and you stopping him as it bites. And so it, it, it's like its last dying act is to bite the heel while its head's being crushed. That's what, that's what the cross is. That's what the cross is. It's Christ's victory over the serpent. You know, where, where was Jesus crucified? What was the place called? Do you remember? It's in three of the Gospels. It's in, it's in Matthew, Mark, and John. Golgotha. What does Golgotha mean? The place of the skull. Why did they call it that? It, the hillside looks like a skull. It, it had the, the, I don't know if it's caves or what, but it, it looks a lot like a, like a skull. And so how fitting is it that the Savior, our Savior, Jesus Christ, was crucified 
on a place uh, that looked like a skull, that resembled a skull, and that he crushed the serpent's head by having his feet nailed to a cross on top of that skull. It's In God's providence, that's what he did. That's what that is a picture of. What Satan thought was going to be his victory over God's Messiah was actually his own defeat and the crushing blow that crushed his own head under the feet of Christ. Christ's death and resurrection was his victory over Satan and the salvation of us, his people. Well, what a, In closing, what a beautiful thing it is that God's light, the light of his gospel, shines so soon after the fall of mankind into sin in chapter 3. This, there wouldn't be any hope in chapter 3 at all if not for this part of this verse and some of what follows. What an amazing thing that we find the fullness of the very substance of the gospel of God found in this one little part of one verse in Genesis chapter 3. Everything about the gospel is really summarized, not just in the chapter, but in this one part of one verse even about the seed who would crush the head of the serpent. Not only the strife, but the seed or offspring spoken of in this one short verse. They're written there. They're written of there for our instruction. They're written of there for our salvation. The gospel is being preached to you here in this text when you read it, that you might learn to look by faith to Christ for salvation from your sin and also from deliverance there by him from the tyranny of the devil. That's, of course, the ultimate meaning of Christmas, isn't it? It's really what, it's the only reason to celebrate Christmas at all is that the birth of Christ, which was anticipated all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and all through your Old Testament, all the way up until the Gospel of Matthew. I mean, think about this. Thousands of years beforehand, the opening pages of Scripture point us to the Messiah already, point us to the Redeemer, the Savior from sin already. When you read your Old Testament, in some ways, speaking of Advent, the anticipation of the coming of Christ is all through your Old Testament. It was, it was the main thing they were waiting for to happen. Unfortunately, many of them, that's what they're still waiting for, even though he's come. It, the whole thing points forward to the coming of Christ. So when you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, you know when you see these angelic hosts singing and, and the sky lighting up and the shepherds you know, quaking at the sight, it, that's how big of a deal it was. All of redemptive history pointed forward to this one thing that we, in our, thankfully in our day, by God's grace, we come after it. We, we know it's already, that he's already come. He's already been born incarnate and died and rose again for our sin. And what does the New Testament tell us? It says that you know, we too who have believed in Christ for salvation and life in his name, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that we also, quote, wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. We look back on the coming of Christ. There's a coming of Christ that we look forward to as well. And that's his returning glory when he comes to judge the living and the dead and the life that is to come. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we don't have a Bible that waits until halfway through to bring up the gospel, the good news of Christ. Uh, that your gospel, you, you did not wait until very long after the fall itself. Even while you were passing sentence and, and, and casting your curse upon uh, the serpent, even in the midst of that, that you gave the good news of Christ himself to, to Adam and Eve in their hearing when you spoke those curses to the serpent, that you, you were preaching in the midst of giving your curse to the serpent. You were preaching your good news, the gospel of your son, the gospel of salvation, even to Adam and Eve. And even as you, you did not too many verses later, you, 
You clothed them with garments of skin, that you showed them even the idea of substitutionary atonement in the death of some animal, maybe it was even a lamb. But all these things point forward to the death of your son in the place of sinners. And we give you praise and thanks that you could have justly left each one of us in our sins. You could have justly and rightly left each one of us to our own just condemnation and death and hell and eternity. And yet by your grace, you did not do that. And we give you praise and thanks, not even remotely how much you deserve, but we thank you and praise you for your goodness and your grace. And we pray that you would help us to appreciate these things, help us to look to Christ, to learn to love him more. Give us grace, even as we think about Christmas, to, to, to look back and wonder upon your love for us, that you would do such a thing as sending him to save us from our sins. And give us grace to look forward to his return more and more, to glorify and to, to work while there is time. But give us grace and joy in serving you that we look forward to seeing him face to face one day. And we do pray that if anybody here does not yet know you through faith in Christ, if they are still in their sins, that you might make today the day of their salvation. Draw them to faith in Christ even now. Do what only you can do. Draw men unto yourself through faith in Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.